Hello, and thank you for joining us today on this Ropes and Gray podcast. I'm Maury Ward, counsel in our tax-exempt group. Today, I'm joined by my colleagues, Kendi Osman and Gil Gatton, who also focus their practices on representing tax-exempt organizations. In today's podcast, we are going to discuss an important change to the unrelated business income tax, also referred to as UBIT, enacted as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the TCJA, that may not yet be on everyone's radar screens. Kendi, why don't we jump in with a little background here? Thanks, Maury. So we're talking about new Section 512A7, which is already in effect. It was effective as of January 1st of this year, and it treats the costs incurred by tax-exempt employers with respect to certain fringe benefits as creating unrelated business taxable income, UBTI. Let me repeat that point because it's a counterintuitive one. This provision treats expenses as income for a tax-exempt employer. Let's break down the components of this new code section. It tells us that UBTI will be increased by costs incurred by a tax-exempt employer that, one, would have been non-deductible under Section 274 if the employer were taxable, and two, are paid or incurred for any of three specific types of employee benefits. The three types of employee benefits are, first, qualified transportation fringe benefits, second, parking facilities used in connection with qualified parking, and third, on-premises athletic facilities. So, there are two conditions here. First, the expense must be one that would have been non-deductible under Section 274, which is the general rule barring a deduction for taxable employers with respect to certain entertainment expenses. Second, the expense must be one that fits within one of these three fringe benefit categories. With respect to that first condition, it's important to understand that the TCJA also changed Section 274. The version of Section 274 that was in the House version of the Act would have specifically disallowed deductions for taxable employers for their expenses associated with providing the exact same three categories of fringe benefits enumerated in Section 512A7. The idea here is that Congress was trying to put employers taxable and tax-exempt in the same economic position, denying a deduction for taxable employers for their expenses associated with providing certain employee fringe benefits, and because tax-exempt employers don't really care about losing deductions, they're tax-exempt after all, the way to replicate this lack of deduction for a tax-exempt employer is to impose a tax on them based on the amount of the expense incurred for providing that same set of benefits to their employees. There's a wrinkle here, though, because in the final version of the TCJA, the Section 274 amendment and the new Section 512A7 don't match up exactly. The version of Section 274 that was enacted only specifically refers to denying an employer deduction for expenses associated with qualified transportation fringe benefits. There's no specific reference to parking facilities and no mention of on-premises athletic facilities which remained in Section 512A7, although they were dropped from the final Section 274 amendments. So that leaves one to wonder how to interpret Section 512A7. Treasury has at least informally acknowledged that the reference to on-premises athletic facilities in Section 512A7 is currently inoperative. 
since a deduction for these facility expenses is not currently denied under Section 274. The treatment of parking facility expenses remains unclear, and we'll talk a bit about that later. So just off the bat, it's clear that this is a new type of provision that we're not used to seeing under the UBIT rules. That's right. The UBIT rules were designed to impose a tax on exempt organizations with respect to their net income from operating trades or businesses unrelated to their tax-exempt purposes. The basic idea being, if you're operating a business comparable to a taxable organization, you should pay tax on the net income from that business. Section 512A7 departs from that regime and instead says that an employer's expenses from providing certain fringe benefits to its employees are treated as UBTI. Expenses create income. And unlike other UBIT provisions, this means there isn't the ability to offset the tax with expenses from the activity. In fact, it's the expenses themselves that give rise to the income. It sounds like there's a lot of uncertainty with this new section and how it will actually work in certain situations. Why don't we start with some of the clear-cut scenarios? Gil? Well, the clear scenario involves a qualified transportation fringe benefit that the employer provides to its employees by paying a third party. And let's put aside for the moment pre-tax elections and just consider benefits the employer provides in excess of an employee's compensation. Kendi mentioned the term qualified transportation fringe earlier. What does that mean under current law? A qualified transportation fringe, or a QTF for short, includes three categories of transportation benefits. First, transportation in a commuter highway vehicle. These are the commuter buses and van pools that employees take back and forth to work from home. Second, transit passes. And third, qualified parking. This is parking the employer provides on or near the business premises. I should note, by the way, that the TCJA did not change the ability of an employee to exclude qualified transportation fringe benefits from income, except for bicycle commuting reimbursements, which is a fourth category of QTF. And because these amounts are now taxable to employees, they would not give rise to UBTI under 512A7. But for the other types of QTFs, even though taxable employers can't deduct these expenses and tax-exempt employers have UBTI as a result of incurring them, employees still can exclude these benefits from income, up to certain limits. So let's consider the simplest cases. Employer pays for an employee transit pass or parking at a third-party parking facility. Assume the cost of the passes and parking are within the income exclusion limit, currently $260 per month the employer would have UBTI up to the exclusion amount. If the expense of the employer exceeds the exclusion limit, the employee would have taxable income for the excess, but the employer's UBTI would be capped at the exclusion limit. It's not entirely clear whether you get there by saying that the excess is not a QTF, or whether you rely on language in Section 274 that says a deduction is permitted if the amount is includable in the employee's taxable income. Since the excess is includable in the employee's income, a taxable employer could claim a deduction, meaning a tax-exempt employer should not have UBTI. Either way, the UBTI would seem to have an upper limit for these types of QTFs that the employer funds by making a payment to a third party. Kendi, Gill mentioned these transportation fringe benefits can be paid for with pre-tax employee contributions. There's been some confusion about whether pre-tax employee contributions create UBTI for tax-exempt employers. 
What's the issue here, and do we have any clarity on this yet? So Section 512A7 refers to amounts paid or incurred by the exempt organization. And Section 274A4 refers to expenses of the employer. As part of their employee benefit programs, many employers permit employees to elect to have some of their wages taken out of their paychecks and use that amount to purchase transit passes, pay for parking, or contribute to a commuting reimbursement account. As you noted, Maury, there's been some debate about whether pre-tax programs would constitute amounts paid or incurred by the organization such that they would give rise to UBTI. The basic analysis is that the employer is effectively reducing the amount of compensation being paid to the employee and is instead using those funds to provide the employee with a QTF benefit. In fact, the IRS recently updated Publication 15B, which is the Employer's Tax Guide to Fringe Benefits. That publication included a new tip that makes clear the deduction disallowance under Section 274 applies to expenses for qualified transportation fringe benefits through a compensation reduction agreement. That's the technical term for a pre-tax election program. So the IRS, at least, has come out stating that pre-tax employee contributions would be treated as an employer expense under Section 274, which by extension means a pre-tax employee contribution would also be treated as an expense that gives rise to UBTI under Section 512A7. Employee pre-tax transportation programs are extremely popular and widespread among all types of employers, including exempt organizations. It seems that this is likely to create a tax liability for a large number of employers, many of whom may not be prepared for it or able to afford it. That's exactly right. While it's too early to say what employers are likely to do, we're certainly aware of some employers that are considering terminating their pre-tax election programs. This would mean employees would now bear the cost of the transportation benefit using after-tax dollars, effectively shifting the tax burden from employers to their employees. So let's complicate things, or maybe I should say complicate things further. How about parking? You mentioned this earlier, but there seems to be a lot of uncertainty about the explicit reference to parking facilities in Section 512A7 and the absence of such a reference in Section 274. What are you seeing and hearing on this, Gil? This is probably the most confusing aspect. Just to restate it, to be taxable as UBTI under 512A7, the expense must be one that is disallowed under 274. So this means that in order for parking facility expenses to give rise to UBTI under 512A7, a section that specifically refers to parking facilities, one must first conclude that taxable employers are denied a deduction for parking facility expenses under section 274A4, a section that does not refer to parking facilities and just refers to qualified transportation fringes. As we already noted, there's an apparent mismatch between the language used in 512A7 and that used in 274. And this can be traced back to the changes made between the House version of the TCJA and what became the final version. The House version included a specific reference to parking facilities in both 274 and 512, just like it did for on-premises athletic facilities. Whereas the final version retained the House language for 512, but went with the Senate's version of 274, which did not include a reference to parking facilities or on-campus athletic facilities. So one is left to speculate as to whether the removal of the parking facility reference under 274 reflects an intentional policy decision not to pick up parking facilities. Remember, sections 512A7 and 274 
served to impose a tax liability on employers in connection with the foregone tax on employees that results from the transportation fringe being excluded from the employee's taxable income. However, both of these sections are written in terms of an employer's expenses. A taxable employer is denied a deduction for expenses associated with qualified transportation fringes, and an exempt employer has UBTI. For many types of transportation fringes, notably transit passes and parking at third-party facilities, the amount excluded from the employee's income equals the amount of the expense incurred by the employer. But that's not the case when we're talking about the employer's own facility expenses. To determine the value of employer-provided parking for purposes of an employee's income exclusion, one looks to the fair market rental value of the parking spot. However, the fair rental value may depart significantly from the employer's expenses of providing the parking. Employer's expenses may include maintenance, overhead, security, insurance, personnel costs, and likely even depreciation. Right, so the parking facility expenses could greatly exceed the rental value. Exactly. Take, for example, an employer that has lots of parking available and so offers that parking to everyone, employees and the general public, at no charge. Under the technical reading of the code and the regulations, as well as an IRS notice from 1994, the employer has provided its employees a QTF, albeit one with a value of zero dollars. In the past, it was not very important to determine whether a QTF was provided or not. Either way, the employee had no amount included in income. But now, because of 512A7 and the possibility that parking facility expenses could be taxed as UBTI, even for a zero-dollar benefit, this becomes very important. If that employer has provided its employees with a QTF, then even though the value of the benefit received by the employees is zero dollars, the employer would need to include as UBTI its expenses of providing that parking. This seems like it can't have possibly been the intent, but that's potentially where we end up if Treasury concludes that parking facility expenses are covered by this new provision. So that's one big issue with concluding that parking facility expenses are picked up. That would seem to be enough, but are there more? Well, the other big one is the issue of double counting, or essentially imposing UBTI for multiple reasons connected with employer-provided qualified parking. Take, for example, an employer that has a garage and charges employees fair rental value for that lot. And to keep things simple, let's assume that the fair rental value is less than the employee income exclusion amount of $260 per month. But assume that the employees pay for that parking using a pre-tax election. As Kendi mentioned earlier, the IRS has gone on record that it will treat a pre-tax election as if the employer paid or incurred the cost. So the employer would have UBTI to the extent of the pre-tax election by the employees. But now, if parking facility costs are picked up, that means this employer not only has UBTI to the extent of the pre-tax election for parking, but also potentially has UBTI with respect to all of its expenses associated with that garage. That seems like double counting and likely also cannot have been the intent here. Well, it seems like guidance will be needed to resolve these issues related to parking facility expenses. Definitely. Unfortunately, we all know that the IRS and Treasury are working with limited resources, and there's a pressing need for guidance with respect to many aspects of tax reform legislation. Treasury and the IRS updated their joint priority guidance plan recently to add two items from the TCJA to the list of exempt organization items they intend to address with some form of guidance before the end of June. These are the new UBTI basketing or siloing rule that requires exempt organizations to calculate UBTI separately for each trade or business, and the new excise tax on executive compensation. 
guidance on the provision we've been discussing, Section 512A7, didn't make the cut. But we know that Treasury's interested in hearing about issues with other provisions, even if they didn't make the priority guidance plan. And we think there's a need for immediate guidance on some of the parking facility expense issues Gill outlined, particularly since organizations need to start thinking about estimated tax payments for their UBTI. Hard to do when a significant potential tax liability remains so uncertain. Well, thank you, Kendi and Gil, for joining me in the trenches on this topic. I suspect there's a lot more we could get into and that we've only scratched the surface on the issues that exempt organizations are going to be wrestling with as they seek to navigate these new rules. Please stay tuned for future podcasts from Ropes and Gray's Tax Exempt Group. And of course, if we can help you maneuver through any of these challenges, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Thank you for joining us.